Hello, listeners. It's me. It's your old buddy again, Steve Simonson here, and we're doing another Mentor Monday. Uh, I used to do these back in 2017, 2018, and uh, I, I can't do them and commit to you to do them every Monday or, uh, you know, give some sort of cadence that will be guaranteed. But I can tell you today, which is Monday, uh, at least that's the day that this is being released, it's happening. It's Mentor Monday. Uh, get with your friends and family and celebrate. It's good times. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about what I think the top seven mistakes that Amazon sellers, particularly Amazon FBA sellers, make when they are sourcing in Vietnam. Now, for those uh, keeping score at home, I've been talking about Vietnam for you know uh, four or five years now, and I've talked about how it is, for many categories, a the most obvious place to consider as a backup plan to China. So everybody has this uh, phraseology that they uh, refer to these days called China plus one. Um, but it could be plus one minus China uh, uh, for a lot of these cases. Uh, in our case, we have tried to minimize the exposure to China as best we can, in a, minimize the impact of the Trump tariff specifically as best we can by finding alternative uh, trade routes, essentially. Now, I do want to make sure that you understand this is not a static situation. It is dynamic and many variables are at play. So as an example, when you're thinking of, well, I'm already buying from China and it's going just fine. The supplier's nice to me and I like them and we've got a good price. We've got a good relationship. Why break the status quo? Well, you know what? Your context is different. Maybe that's the right answer for you. But I'm telling you, it's dynamic in the marketplace. So your competitor could be off trying to find this uh, product or this uh, you know, particular niche that you're serving and find some new approach to it. And maybe they can find this in Vietnam or India or some other place. And therefore, they don't have to pay the, the extra Trump tariff and so forth. And so they suddenly now they're getting a benefit that you don't have. And, and you start to ask yourself... Why is my competition selling at such low prices? I don't understand this. You know, this doesn't make sense. They're selling below cost. And you have all these things going on in your mind about things that are may or may not be true. And my advice to you today is uh, let's think about the top seven things that uh, the top seven mistakes that, that Amazon FBA sellers make when they're sourcing in Vietnam. Let's jump in, everybody. Uh, I'm going to do this both in an audio and a visual presentation form. The audios get these pretty graphics made by our very own Z. Thanks, Z. Appreciate your hard work here. So today is Mentor Monday. I'll be your mentor. Monday will be the day. Uh, by the way, presented by Catalyst88.com. Uh, you can go there and check out some of the things we're doing. Uh, you'll find more news in the coming weeks on that uh, because things are... Uh, really moving fast over here in Awesomer's land. Now, as always, or at least uh, for the most part, I like to put in a little bit of a disclaimer that I don't know nothing about nothing. And this is my Axiom Zero. It has become relatively well-known. If you are, if you know me or if you've been to events, I often start out with this to give you a little context. These things are things that I believe and I'm sharing with you from you know, a real place of credibility because I've been around. But I want to tell you, there's other ways of doing things. 
And I'm always open to learning. And in, in this context, I would encourage you to be open to learn as well. Try to put our, our bias aside um, in any situation, whether it's this podcast or you know, a meeting with a supplier or whatever, try to set our biases aside and let's see if we can learn something and or at least have another perspective. And then at the end of that, we can reconcile our past experience with this new information and decide where we stand on the topic. But as uh, you might know, I don't know, nothing about nothing is part of my brand because I want to learn. And I, I don't always expect that I am right, although it happens an awful lot. All right, we're moving on. So this topic is going to just cover the top seven sourcing mistakes by Amazon FBA sellers. Uh, this is not unique to Amazon FBA sellers. This is kind of a broad assortment and, and even could apply globally, but specific things to Vietnam I'm going to bring up throughout this episode. So if you're ever contemplating Vietnam, you're thinking about sourcing in Vietnam, here's some things to consider. Let us start with a number one, which is, what if we knew where we were going before we got there? Uh, this number one rule is start with a desired result. So this means you start to think about what are you actually intending to accomplish here? Um, saying I want to source this item is part of it, right? Yes, I would like to source you know, a, a new mouse pad and move it from China to Vietnam, or at least see what my options are in Vietnam uh, compared to my current supplier, wherever that current supplier may be. Now, price is one part of the equation, right? But you need to look at the timing of the shipment. You need to look at the terms you're getting. You need to look at, you know, all of the various pieces of the puzzle. Uh, maybe it's the simplest thing. Maybe everything's exactly the same. Pardon me. If everything's exactly the same, but for some reason, the new supplier takes twice as long to get the product to you, right? That would be worse. You, you'd be downgrading. Or the converse could be true. What if the new supplier, everything's equal with China, no pricing advantage, but they could get the product to you in half the time that it's taking China, right? Wow, now that would be a great cash flow advantage. So understanding your desired results should incorporate multidimensional variables here. So you're talking about not just price, not just terms, not just you know uh, the timing, but any of the other factors that could include quality, they could include communication, they could include the simplicity of dealing with somebody, but sketch out what you think is the desired result so that there's no surprise later uh, when you're contemplating this and going, you know, did, have I accomplished my mission? Well, you don't know if you didn't set out the mission to begin with. We like to do this in, in projects. We kind of set it out and then we get into the series of tasks that are related to that project outcome. All right, so number two is it's the one of the most basic things, and it's probably um, you know if not the 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 leading cause of trouble, it's certainly in the the top two or three, and it's miscommunication. The lack of understanding between parties is where I see so many problems, and I I'll be honest with you, I've sat in you know hundreds of of supply meetings, maybe thousands, I don't know. I've certainly been to thousands of uh, factories, well, over 1,000 factories, I know that much. I, I can't do the full math, but certainly over 1,000 factories. And many cases, I will hear the supplier say something in English and the 
the counterparty, if that's one of my team members or, you know, I'm sitting in on another meeting for a, a supplier, um, but I'll hear people in the room say things and they both think they're understanding each other. And it seems to me that they are not. And so I will you know, kind of inject myself and say, uh, this is what I think you're saying. And they'll say, yes. And then I'll say, this is what I think you're saying. And they'll say, yes. And then it'll become very clear. Everybody was off on the wrong foot. Don't just take somebody nodding their head yes as yes, I understand. And in fact, uh, as I've talked about with China specifically, but this is in general true, the Asia yes is often uh, code for I don't want to talk about this anymore or I don't understand what you're saying or yes, I actually agree with you and, and comprehend 100% or no, I disagree with you. I hate you. I wish you would leave. But the easiest way for me to do that is to say yes and then ignore you later. Yes is the kind of the under um, the underrepresented no of, of our time. And I, I used to joke about this with China specifically, but it's quite true in Vietnam as well. That when you when you hear people say yes, it ranges everything again from that, you know, yes, absolutely, we get it to. Uh, maybe I don't really understand what you're getting at to not a chance in hail, but I'm going to say yes. Anyway, all of that could be represented by yes. So there are many meanings of yes. That is, you know, a, a supply side consideration for you to, to make sure one tip of the day, uh mentor tip would be if they're saying yes, have them repeat back to you what you just said to them and then say, and these are terms you can agree to, right? Be very explicit about it. The other thing is don't use any colloquial type of language. Don't use analogies or idioms, anything that you are familiar with in your language that they may not be familiar as a, you know, not a native speaker. You do not want to put into the equation. That's not part of the puzzle. I have seen this again too many times where people, you know, they'll, they'll use some anecdote or some, you know, uh, metaphor and it completely breaks down the entire flow of the conversation because the other parties, not only do they not understand it, but it's really not, it's not on them to understand it. It's on you to communicate in a clear way. Stay away from, you know, any kind of slang, idioms, anecdotes, things that won't have a kind of universal meaning. Uh, the other thing I will say is stay away from platitudes. Saying things like, we need high quality, and the, the supplier shakes their head yes, and they say, yes, uh, yeah, well, well, high quality, yeah, we, we're on board. That is not the same as writing a specification. That is not the same as agreeing to a standard. And by doing that, whether it's in Vietnam or elsewhere, you're setting yourself up to fail. And that, you know, that platitude of, we hope you do a good quality job for us, because that's really important to us, and everybody's shaking their head sincerely, not a an agreement and certainly not a contract. Let's get in to number three, everybody. It's when you have no purchasing system. Now I've harped on this for uh, you know years and years, and it probably is never going to get fixed. So I'm just simply going to uh, repeat it, and then you, the counterparty to this uh, discussion, may ignore it if that's what you wish. But having no purchasing system is a uh, it's a problem especially when you grow larger and larger. Now, if literally you are placing one order a year, you probably don't have to get super systematized. Um, although 
you know, I think when you start with good practices early on, you maintain good practices as you grow and the benefits of that uh, scale and having a system that scales with you become more and more apparent. So as an example, um, you know, maybe you'll create a, um, uh, an RFQ or a purchase order that, that brings in a request for quotes. Then you're, you're, you know, and again, this would be assuming you've already kind of specified an item. You've got this item. You've got a few factories that have indicated an interest from your sourcing stuff. Now you send an RFQ that includes the appropriate specifications. And then you can decide if you want to finalize that PO with one of the specific vendors. This is where the analysis and vendor selection comes in. And it's a thoughtful discussion. You get into some of the nitty gritty. Uh, and then you're starting to negotiate elements of the terms and conditions, um, locking in your FX rate, as I've talked about. Uh, what is the price agreement that everybody has? Um, and and what is that FX rate today? What is that based on? That's, uh, again, maybe seem, seem redundant, but that's how important it is. Uh, you also talk about INCO terms on you know this particular phase, uh, if you haven't covered that up until now. You make sure you talk about any credit terms that you may get and how they will or will not leverage Sinosure could be relevant to those discussions. Uh, then you talk about how long will it take to receive the goods and services, right? And once you kind of have all that sorted out, then you can formalize your PO. You'll send them the purchase order, which again, should be very um, specific and include all the terms and conditions you guys have agreed to. This is your part of the, the agreement. There is a specific way you can do it in China to make it enforceable in Chinese courts. And I've talked about before, I'm not going to spend time on it now, but having a proper China PO that is done exactly the way uh, that the Chinese authorities like it to be done gives you a much, much higher chance of, let's say, enforceability to the extent some term or some issue comes up later. Uh, maybe you can't start that now. Fair enough. But starting with a purchase order that is in writing versus an email that says, send me a thousand units of this thing we talked about. Vastly different from a professional landscape perspective. And your supplier judges you on every one of these interactions they have with you. They judge you by the quality of the questions you ask. They judge you by, you know, uh, the types of things that you may um, inquire about. Um, so not just the quality of the questions, but the breadth of questions that you're asking. And this is why, you know, at Product Savants, we have a two or three, maybe it's even four pages now, um, basically uh, like a an analysis of each supplier where they go through and they answer a bunch of questions. Who are you selling to? What trade shows you go to? How long have you been in business? How many employees you got? How many production lines? Just so many questions. And they can tell, like somebody who asks that many questions, they're, they're automatically at the higher end of the scale when it comes to uh, a professional, right? There's there's people who just make inquiries on Alibaba and go, you know, can I get a thousand units of this? That would be the lowest level of, you know, kind of inquiry all the way up to the more sophisticated, you know, you, you don't want to ask too much too soon, right? Your first interaction to them shouldn't be answering a thousand questions. It should be to see if there's a meeting of the mind, see if there's real opportunity, and then to get into the, the nitty gritty later. Uh, Finally, once they send you, you send the PO, they send you a PI, and now it's time to set up in your system how the goods are received into the, the system. And it doesn't matter 
where they're physically received, although that's relevant to this process, but they need to be received in your system. So you can track from the time to PO to the time you physically got the goods and then uh, benchmark that against future shipments so that you can understand forecasting. You can understand, gosh, when should I reorder? Based on the last 10 times we've ordered, it's taken an average of 73 days. And so I better plan on you know 73 days or 75 days, whatever it happens to be. So once you get it, then I want you to really go in and make sure that you're, you know, checking all of the the various materials, not just the goods themselves, but any invoicing that may be relevant, any receiving documents. This is where you make sure all the paperwork matches. Maybe your 3PL says, you know, or Amazon FBA says, you know, we're we're 50 units short here. Gosh, let's reconcile that. What what happened? How did it happen? Now you're into checking weights and you're checking, you know, how many boxes came over, pallets or what have you. Uh, and then finally, assuming that you didn't pay up front and you have terms, then you would authorize payment once all that's reconciled. Now, obviously, along the way, you're going to do your standard, ins- you know, post-production, pre-shipment inspection and other types of things that I'm not getting into those details. All of that is part of the the system. It's just, you know, purchasing and inspection. Those are kind of different processes. And then finally, you would get down to any, uh, you know, related record keeping, things like that. You would upload those documents uh, so that they stay in that PO and you can remember the history. Uh, we can, None of us can remember every detail. So we like to have the purchase order have every, you know, kind of email back and forth, um, which is baked into the, the system. Any documents, any conversations, maybe it's on WeChat. I took some screenshots. I'll put them in the PO. Like we don't want to forget stuff. So that's how we do it. And then finally, you can close out the purchase order once you're done. No matter how your system works, there should be a beginning and an end. And whatever you know, sequential steps happen in the meantime, these are up to you. But be think systemically um, as opposed to lazily. <laughs> uh, sending an email with a, a quantity is uh, not a system. All right. The the next bit, which I've alluded to, but have not dived into the detail, is that you don't give enough detail. So you say, you know, gosh, well, I, I sent them a sample and I don't really want to write down all the things about how to get, you know, a stapler made, right? So uh, for the uh, audio listeners, I'm holding up a, a stapler. Oh, but it's uh, being blocked by the uh, magic camera. So if you're trying to get a stapler built, you need to specify, you know, what is the you know material? And if there's multiple materials on the stapler I'm holding up, there's plastic uh, at the top and there's metal. There's another kind of stainless steel at the bottom and there's some snaps and some screws. Like every piece of that should be specified. What is the alloy? What is the plastic? You know, uh, and I'm talking about chemical definitions or classification definitions. You should talk about sizes, lengths, widths, density, um, thickness, right? Gloss levels, any and every detail that you can come up with so that there's no question that you guys are saying the same things. And now is a good time for me to remind you to read Poorly Made in China. I know, my friends, that this seems redundant to you. But believe it or not, there are people who watch these and they've never seen anything that I've spoken on before. Uh, So the recommendation of reading Poorly Made in China is to help them. And uh, for those who have heard me say it before and haven't read it, please take a moment. Poorly Made in China by Paul Midler. 
I have no affiliate deal. I, you know, uh, I have no financial interest in you reading it. I have financial interest only in you not killing yourself uh, when you find out some of the tough lessons that others have learned. So uh, really, it's not financial interest. It's an emotional interest, I suppose. So getting your detailed specifications cannot be, um, I, I guess, overstated in terms of its importance. Now, maybe your first order, you missed a, a spec or two or 10. The second order should be that much better, right? And the third order would be that much better. And I can say, despite our levels of experience, I don't know of a single order we've ever had on a first production run that we didn't have one or more changes to the specification after that first order. And, and it's kind of an evolution. We continue to evolve those specifications as time goes. And we actually come up with specification templates so that we, you know, we know the product and we know the specification. We can just look that up. We can use it again and again, or we can edit it when we need to make those tweaks. Having those things in your system and making them available is really, really important. And it's also really a sense of, um, I don't know, fairness. Like if you didn't write it down and you just fantasize that they would use the highest quality metal, that's your problem. That's not the factory's fault. Uh, if you expected them to make something out of metal because it's strong and they did it out of plastic and it broke, that's your fault not the factories, right? This is really where um, your responsibilities become most highlighted because any complaint you get, any point of failure that comes back to a specific specification, which was either not specified uh, or insufficient to, to meet the quality of the job, that's your problem. Now, the responsibility shifts to the factory when it was clearly specified and they failed to meet that criteria. Now, again, I'm going to still put an asterisk next to that and say, if you didn't catch that in pre-shipment inspection, if you didn't do lab tests to validate this, if it was really important to you, you still have a, a degree of responsibility. You know, I like to say trust, but always verify. Like not trust, but verify occasionally, like trust and always verify. So there are third-party labs in China that uh, you can get to do tests. There are third-party labs in the United States and Europe and, and other, you know, Australia and, you know, South America, wherever you can have do testing for you that give a third-party objective opinion as to a specific test or specification. And I, I this is an opportunity to remind you that when you're doing a testing, you know, meeting this particular requirement, it's really good to use a, an unbiased third-party uh, specification number or rule number. So like having a, an ASTM number, you know, this product must meet this ASTM requirement between this range and that range is a best practice. And listen, I understand. I know there's people rolling their eyes right now and they're like, hey, I'm just trying to order these, you know, uh, salt and pepper shakers. I don't know why I have to be so, you know, detailed. And the answer is the minute those salt and pepper shakers you know, break into, you know, pieces or, you know, you determine they're not made of FDA materials and they have to be recalled because, you know, they're a, a health risk or, you know, whatever the case is, then you were warned, right? I, I know formality and systems, they they speak against this idea that, oh, private label so easy and passive Amazon FBA income and, you know, e-commerce is so easy. Like all of that's nonsense. 
right? That is all just BS marketing nonsense. Don't pay attention to it and don't get caught up in those silly details. You need specifications. You need to make sure that you're investing in you know, your own quality of product. All right, the third, uh, not third, the, the fifth, it's number five, everybody, is the lack of oversight. So I just talked about some of those, you know, things that are important. The pre-shipment inspection, which is usually after production, but before it ships, you go in and you have a, an inspection company go through and basically review for your specifications quality from some percentage of the lot. Usually it's 10 or 10 or 20%. If it's your first shipment, you might be well advised to pay for a higher percentage. Uh, maybe maybe you want to do you know 40 or 50% just because you're you're nervous about it. Uh, I generally would say that that is not worth it unless you didn't set up the specifications correctly. The, the way a, a, an inspection works is if they have a percentage of failures in that random test batch that they drew from, then they're going to inspect an additional percent. So let's just say that the number is they're going to inspect 20% of the stuff. If they get a certain fail rate that you guys agree to, that is too high, they inspect another 10%. And if the, they still get the fail rate, they'd inspect another 10%. So there's this kind of escalation to protect you. Now, I, I again, I know some people, they're like, I'm just going to inspect everything. Uh, more power to you. Knock yourself out. Uh, but you're, you're actually keeping score after the fact. If you're that concerned, then put somebody in the building during production. That would be a production inspection. Uh we think that that is very reasonable. And, you know, I remember um, one of the universities in North Carolina, I think it was North Carolina, but anyway, some university, we were producing a bunch of furniture for them and they put a person in our building for the three months that it took us to, to you know, build stuff for a bunch of their dorms. Um, that's reasonable. That's fair. They got to see every piece of the production process during this critical you know, giant purchase order. That's very, very reasonable. There, are, we also do some what we would call pre-production uh, inspections. This would be things like going and looking at raw materials. How are the raw materials being acclimated? Um, are the raw materials sufficient to cover the size of our orders? Um, you know, and, and by the way, are the raw materials sufficient to cover the succession of orders we expect to come in the future? So knowing, you know, quantity, date received, you know, uh, is it being stored in, in the appropriate places? Some materials are more um, instable if they don't have, you know, like humidity controls or things like that. All of these things are factors that you might consider, uh, including in your inspections. Generally speaking, if you, you know, unless your volume is huge or, you know, unless you have some specific itch you're trying to scratch when, when it comes to quality, most people are fine with post-shipment inspections. But I will tell you that every supplier that we have, you know, at any given time, we're still tracking hundreds and hundreds of containers. And those are the containers we track are from the point of PO to the point of delivery in this particular department. And that means that we want to know what the status is of every PO, even if it's a month before production or two months. Like, is do you have all the raw materials? And so we have this whole checklist of the steps that it might be involved in a production of a specific material. And we ask them every week, 
uh, either by email or they log into our system and tell us, you know, what's the status? Do you have sufficient raw materials? If not, when will they be in? And then what does that mean for our, our PO ship times? And this, this is, again, trying to add oversight to the process instead of finding out at the last minute, oh, golly, this thing was supposed to ship or I was supposed to receive this. And then you find out, no, it's not even in production yet. Right. And the fact is, um, you know, although this happens far less in Vietnam, in China is an example, the COVID lockdowns are just randomly just closing things down. Uh, Vietnam had that in some respect in the past, but less so now. So as you think about Vietnam, you got to figure out, well, who's my freight forwarder? Who's my, you know, inspection company? And have I sorted that out? And by the way, I think Empowery has some resources they can share with you uh, to accomplish some of those goals. So make sure your oversight process is sufficient because it's on you if there's a fail and there was nobody watching. All right. One of my favorites, uh, and this is uh, especially true in Vietnam, uh, but it's not untrue elsewhere that, you know, especially when you're start, starting a new product line, everything takes longer and it costs more, right? So, so many times I see sellers and they're like, oh, I got this new idea. Uh, today's Tuesday. I hope to ship out my first samples by Friday. And it's like, hey, if you can pull that off, especially at scale, more power to you. It just, it's rare that that's the case. And whatever product development budget you set up is generally, you know, not sufficient. And so understanding that because things tend to take longer and because the budgets are often busted, that gives you at least a, a managerial perspective to say, you know what, instead of me expecting this thing to be a seven-day process or a 30-day process, whatever the, your baseline is, you know, use a realistic perspective and go, you know, each step in this chain is going to take one week and I got 10 steps. That's a 10-week process. And then hold yourself to it. Don't don't get lazy and say, oh, um, you know, I've got so much time. I got 10 weeks instead of five weeks or whatever the normal uh, old system used to call for. Hold yourself to it. And maybe you can tighten it up. I got no problem that, about tightening things up. This is mostly about saying on your very first, like if you're developing a brand new SKU, in almost every case, it takes longer and it costs more. That's just the, the way things go. Once you have nailed it, now you can tighten it up and you, you know, things get better and better and better. And then once you, as I like to say, once you nail something, then you scale something, not before. So you will get, you know, better cost structures, you get better time and turnarounds. And many times in the case with the factory, if you say, well, gosh, here's how much I want for the next three months, many factories would rather just produce it once and hold those shipments, right? It's a lot easier for them that versus starting up the production lines and, and doing, you know, another uh, batch. Let's say you want 3000 units. You're going to order. Um, if you can give them those POs right now and then say, hold shipment on, you know, the second thousand and the third thousand, they can produce it and maybe save them money. And, and maybe that ultimately saves you money. But at least you know that they're ready to ship it on that second month and third month versus having to go through a whole production cycle again. So there's lots of ways of managing things to prevent taking longer and costing more. But on your first go, just understand this. This is a general rule. In Vietnam, they don't have the same um, infrastructure that, that China has. And so 
the, the port infrastructure, the, you know, the, what uh, my buddy Patrick would call the daisy chain infrastructure is not there. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, what does a daisy chain mean? This is basically like if you're making a, you know, a leather jacket. I can't remember who likes to use the leather jacket example. Maybe this Patrick again, but it's not a leather jacket. It's some leather. It's some zippers. It's some snaps. It's some, you know, thread, right? There's a, you know, the, the, the interior liner may be made of, you know, some other material. Uh, all of these things are submaterials, and then they go somewhere to be cut, sewn, and assembled. All of those things, the snap guy, the zipper guy, the, you know, thread guy, whatever, all of these people have to be able to support that, that you know, the final assembly point and whatever production processes they go through. And in Vietnam, it's just not quite as well developed. This is true of, you know, Thailand and India, Malaysia and others. But I will say Vietnam in some categories is exceptional. And again, we'll do a, another thing if we get enough demand later on what Vietnam's really good at. So if Vietnam, for example, is building something for you and they have to wait for raw materials from China and China has COVID lockdowns, you actually haven't solved the problem. You've just kind of moved the ball uh, into a different uh, arena. And that obviously is not going to have a meaningful impact on your turnaround times. So understand where do they get the raw materials? This is a, a fair question to ask your supplier. And by the way, to the extent that you can influence that or understand that raw material supply chain, the better off you are. In many cases, we will specify, here's the raw material, this is the part number, and this is the supplier you should buy from. And uh, it, we don't actually get in, involved in supplying the raw material in most cases, so we, we do occasionally. But by that specification, we know if we ever have to get rid of this factory for whatever reason, the new factory will use the same raw material supplier. So we have no problem maintaining consistency and quality in our future productions. So there's lots of things involved here. And uh, just one final word on Vietnam in terms of infrastructure. You know, Vietnam has only, you know, I don't know, 150 million people or 120 million. I, I don't remember right off the top of my head. But Vietnam itself does not replace China. Uh, there's a ton of people trying to get stuff into Vietnam, meaning orders and trying to, to buy stuff from Vietnam. And what that creates is uh, a fervor of activity. And so, you know, you may have people, you know, you're like, hey, I need 500 units of this. And you're surprised that the factory you inquired out of Vietnam wasn't interested in your business. Well, maybe that just wasn't big enough for them. Or maybe in whatever way you approach them, it didn't come across like they had a big opportunity. They came across like this is a, you know, too much of a headache for me. And so how you approach um, Vietnamese suppliers makes a difference uh, as well. All right, let's press on to number seven. So compliance is a really, really important part. And this goes beyond, you know, your specifications. Compliance are things like, um, you know, are you compliant with FDA standards? Are you compliant with EPA standards? Assuming they apply to you, right? Not every product has these requirements. Uh, if it's a toy, are you compliant with the, you know, the toy uh, standards for the, the safety and so forth? And depending on the country that you're selling this in, there may be, you know, state or provincial level requirements on top of federal level requirements. And more importantly, is your factory compliant with those? 
So, you know, let's just use the old uh, silicone spatula idea. You may say, great news, I found this silicone spatula or these food storage cubes or whatever. In Vietnam, you know, good price, great price, no no Trump tariffs, whatever. And then you, you gear yourself up and either you realize mid-process or after shipment, holy crap, this factory is trying to import and they don't, they're not on the FDA approved list. So now they're going to get stopped at customs. Right. And this is a really important thing to consider. You know, compliance is not a random thing. If something is has a requirement to be on the FDA list, you best believe that the FDA is getting notification uh, when that shipment hits the port. And if your supplier is not on the uh, the nice list, that means on the naughty list or maybe they don't exist on any list. But that product is going to stop right there until you can come up with the documentation to get it through. And maybe you can, or maybe you can, I, you know, that remains to be seen, but thinking about those compliance and we're talking about government compliance things early on, really, really important. Germany has new compliance requirements that are going into effect that are really impactful. And this is going to happen also in Holland and France and, and all throughout Europe over time where these compliance factors are really, really important for you to think about on the front end. Canada has some labeling requirements that, you know, you may not be prepared for if you, you're not thinking about these ahead of time. This is, you can't expect your supplier in Vietnam or elsewhere to take the responsibility for this, particularly if your terms are like X works. If they're DDP, then they have much more uh, of the compliance requirements for them. And this is one little, um, we'll call it a, a pro tip. If uh, a supplier, for example, has an FDA and you don't want to go through the FDA uh, time and process and cost, it may be better for you to have them imported under the FDA and then you sell it. Um, now, this may not, may not pass the Amazon requirements for FDA um, rules and regulation compliance. It depends on the product. There's some that you absolutely have to be, you know, FDA level one, blah, blah, blah. And so there's no skirting that. There's other things that are like, as long as it's made in an FDA facility, anybody can sell it. Um, that's a, that's kind of a different standard. But I just don't want you guys to ignore these types of things. You know, Vietnam has a, a number of factories that can meet certain requirements. And, you know, obviously many more that probably cannot. That's true of any country, whether it's, you know, China or India, um, you know, Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, really any country uh, can have these kind of obstacles. So don't forget the compliance uh, effect. And, you know, I'll, I'll leave you with this kind of summary. You know, when you think of one through seven, if you don't start with a plan and then measure yourself against that plan, it's hard to know if the results are being met. So, you know, problem number one is not considering the results and needs of all parties. If you can't get a supplier excited about doing business with you, you're almost selling them on why you're awesome and why this is a great opportunity for them. You you missed an opportunity. Uh, the second rule, ineffective communication. And this is true in Vietnam. It's true elsewhere. If you just hear the word yes and assume that means, yeah, we're cool. Everything's golden you are in for trouble. You'll have many, many surprises, very few of which will be good. Um, of course, uh, mistake number three, not having a 
you know, proper purchasing procedure. Again, Vietnam deserves, you know, proper purchasing, as does any other country you're dealing with. Uh, number four, if you don't think about specifications in Vietnam, uh, you're making a mistake because regardless of where you're doing this, I, I still think specs are important, but especially in an emerging place like Vietnam, where there are so many factories that have not done so much exporting. Maybe they don't have the same level of experience that a Chinese factory would. So when you say that you want a, a wallet, you know, the factory in China goes, well, this, this material is the one we're going to get the least complaints on. So we're starting with this. Whereas Vietnam just heard you say lowest price. And so they went and got the cheapest material. This is really where specs, you know, can, can save you. And the sophistication of your suppliers can also uh, be a factor. And I, I do want to have this quick word. If you have factories that are not financially, you know, on solid ground, then you are at risk at some point, whether they just simply stop shipping to you because they went out of business and you didn't have any, you know, direct financial loss. That's still a problem because now you got to replace them in a, in a unexpected and unplanned way. Uh, worse still is if they ship it to you and the product is, you know, defective or uh, out of spec for some reason. And just so you know, this still happens. Like there has been, uh, I can't remember, near, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of product basically interrupted from the Xinjiang region due to some U.S. and uh, U.S. enforcement of a of a forced labor rule, uh, it's an act of Congress. And the, the Uyghur Forced Labor Act basically says nothing can come out of uh, Xinjiang. And some raw materials guys have were shipping it from Xinjiang and trying to slide it into other regions. But, you know, either customs or the, the shipper were doing chemical tests. And I know one company that had to reject 800 containers because the supplier tried a, uh, a fast one. And so now it's a big, big problem for them. So think about, you know, you know, avoiding those types of problems by being very transparent and uh, quite fastidious about that. This brings us to number five, which is uh, mistake number five uh, is inadequate supply chain inspection systems. You know, the fact that that particular importer has lost the 800 containers is terrible. The fact that they didn't receive it and then have customs seize it is better, right? So it never shipped. So they got a problem, but it's not a, as big of a problem as it could have been because they had good supply chain inspection systems. The truth is, the lesson is, if they had done more pre-shipment inspection and, and checked those raw materials that I uh, talked about earlier, they could have avoided such a big problem. Maybe they would have got caught up in five or 10 or 50 containers that kind of got through the system until somebody did the chemical analysis on the origins of the the base material, but, you know, getting into it, 800 containers is, whew, it's a big problem. All right. So finally, uh, problem six is understanding the time and resources required and being realistic and feasible about it generally leads to everything taking longer and costing more. So be, be reasonable. It doesn't mean, you know, don't hold yourself to a good standard, but, you know, the laws of physics apply to us all. So think about that. And finally, not thinking about compliance with your local regulations, whether they're in a provincial or state level, you know, or they're a federal level, or they could be multi-federal, right? If you're shipping product to 
you know, the UK and Canada and the US and EU, there's at least four federal systems there that you have to deal with and make sure that you understand the compliance metrics for each of them. You know, it's it sucks for us, you know, as product brands, but, you know, the EU may have a whole different standard for compliance than the US. And that that is not ideal for us, but it's still a reality. All right. So finally, bringing this thing to, uh, to a close, uh, you know, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. If you have, uh, go ahead and like and subscribe and share and do all the things that people people do. This, uh, again, will help us amplify the, the messages out there. Um, Vietnam is a an exciting place. Uh, we, you know, it really has been one of the biggest saving graces for us during the pandemic because China has been uh, so much more inconsistent during, uh, you know, the past two, three years that uh, it's been just, uh, you know, a real, uh, just a real saving grace. Um, but that doesn't mean just saying I'm moving my stuff to Vietnam magically makes things happen. There's more to it. Vietnam doesn't have the sophistication and the infrastructure that China does. Uh, when I was in, you know, Vietnam, I don't know, five years ago, maybe maybe it's four years ago, I don't remember. Uh, I said to people, you know, on some broadcast similar to this, I said, you know, coming here reminds me of China 20 years ago. And I'm going to be going back to Vietnam, you know, very shortly. And it'll probably be like China 15 years ago. But I bought stuff from China 15 years ago, and it worked out great. And there are different um, economic paradigms that exist in different countries. So the cost of labor is much lower in Vietnam uh, than it is in China, you know, by, you know, more than half, basically. Uh, now, that doesn't mean labor in Vietnam is not increasing. It has and it will, particularly as there's more demand flowing in. Right now, for example... The automotive sector in Vietnam is hiring so aggressively and so rapidly because it's fleeing China that it's sucking up a bunch of the labor, right? So suppliers making, you know, the wallets or the shoes or the, you know, whatever, the, the backpacks, they're losing employees because there's better offers for them in this automotive sector. This is inevitable around the, the globe as, as the supply chain continues to, um, you know, shift and, and find its gravity. So, you know, Vietnam, I think massive, massive opportunity. Nothing is a slam dunk. There is no, you know, simple, easy button to get solve all these problems. But I definitely know that Vietnam is part of that equation. So I want to thank everybody for taking the time out today. And certainly for, um, you know, if you've if you got through this far, I want to just give you an extra special, you know, kudos to you for enduring this. But uh, I really uh, encourage you to, investigate your options around the globe. And uh, until next time, we'll see you later, everybody. Uh, thanks again. And uh, awesomers, stay awesome. Bye-bye. <laughs>